Well, it's been a sweet morning already, worshiping together with you. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in a time of praise and just the, just the, the songs and the, the theological depth. Um, we are grateful for that. We're grateful for the worship team service each week. Same group of folks coming up and just faithfully leading us. I appreciate you for that. Well, it's now time to turn our attention to God's Word, Uh, and it's going to be a little bit different this morning uh, in how we approach things. You see, where we've been at in Matthew so far, we've uh, made it through the end of chapter 4, but you remember that the way Matthew is structured, it alternates. It uh, has a structure of narrative and then these big chunks of discourses where Jesus is teaching in the book of Matthew. And so we've reached the first of the big discourses, the big teaching sections that uh, Jesus is going to give. But let me remind you just briefly where we have been in those first four chapters. Really, we've been seeing Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the king. From the genealogy uh, to, uh, through chapter 4, it's been presented, this is the promised Messiah. This is the son of David. This is the son of Abraham. This is the one who has been promised to, to, to come and rule on David's throne, not only in Jerusalem, but in all the corners of the globe. We've seen the father's uh, approval of the son in his baptism. We've seen the son, the son of God, uh, succeed in his temptation where other sons of God, where, where Adam, where David have failed in the past. And so we know this is the one. And it's not just that he is that king, but he is this king who, like a Moses, like a second Moses, is going to lead his people out of exile. There's been this theme from the genealogy onward that, that Israel, Israel, Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, Israel is still in exile. It's in exile because of its sin. It's under foreign oppression, uh, uh, under a foreign oppression by Rome because ultimately it's sin. And really that extends even to the whole of humanity. We are outside of Eden. We are outside of God's presence because of sin. And so what's been promised is not only is Jesus this king, but he's the king who's going to fulfill all righteousness. He's the king who's going to save his people from their sins. And we've even started seeing in the last couple weeks how Jesus has begun his ministry and proclaiming the exact same message, the the message that uh, Jesus, the king's herald, had proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The kingdom is imminent. It hasn't arrived yet, but it is imminent. And it is imminent because the king himself has come. And if the king has come and if the kingdom is imminent, the only proper response is repentance, turning your allegiance from sin and self to God, to to God, to Christ who will save you alone and to having your allegiance to him alone. And we even saw last week how Jesus began to gather followers to himself, those who would repent in that sense and also follow him on mission. And we've seen him also Uh, begin to heal, begin to give foretastes, appetizers of the coming kingdom. The final kingdom, there will be no more sickness, no disease, no demon oppression, none of it, because the king, the true king, the God-man king will reign over all. 
And we start to see him not only with these committed disciples, but also these crowds, these crowds gathering around Jesus. And we're kind of questioning, are they coming as committed disciples or are they coming for other reasons? Are they coming for Jesus alone or are they coming um, for other reasons? So what we want to do, that's just kind of the setting and where we've been in Matthew so far. And now what we enter is one of the most famous passages, Matthew 5 through 7, in the whole of Christianity, known as the Sermon on the Mount. Really, even those outside of Christianity, folks like Gandhi and uh, folks like him, have, have looked to the Sermon on the Mount as an as amazing ethic. But because it's so famous, because it's so famous, there's a lot of actually confusion about what is the sermon all about? What is it supposed to be doing? What is Jesus doing in this sermon? And so because of that, and as we, because it's so important, so foundational, I thought it would be appropriate this morning to give you an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Before we start launching in and going section by section through the sermon and dissecting it, I want to give for you a setting. I want to set the stage of this sermon. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to briefly walk you through a few things. What is the setting? Who is the audience? What's the purpose? What's the structure? And how should we apply this sermon? And then what we're going to do is I'm going to read the sermon. I'm going to read the whole thing. Because what I want you to do, so if I just started preaching through this section by section, you would see a lot of components. But before we understand and examine the components, we want to understand the whole. And I want you to hear the whole. I want you to hear the words of Jesus directed to you. And so first, I'm going to give you some overview things to orient ourselves, and then I'm going to read the sermon. So first, let's walk through some of these orienting questions. What is the setting of this sermon? What is the setting of this sermon? Well, on one level, we, we could look at, answer that question on another level, uh, many different levels. Uh, look at verses uh, 1 and 2, just to start with. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So he's on some sort of mountain or mountainous region around the Sea of Galilee. That's his base of operations. He moved to Capernaum. He's going throughout the region of Galilee, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. So somewhere in that area, we're not exactly sure where, there's one particular site that a lot of people favor, but uh, he goes up on a mountaintop, okay? So geographically, he's on a mountain, okay? And that's, that's actually significant, as we'll talk about here in a minute, He's on a mountain and he's teaching. He's sitting down and he's teaching. So there seems nothing uh, super special about that. But like I said, there is significance to it. But there's also another setting we could think about. And we can think about uh, how this sits in the whole gospel. How this sits in the whole gospel. You remember when we did an overview of the whole book of Matthew, we said the purpose, the purpose of Matthew as a gospel is to prove that Jesus is king. We've been seeing a lot of that in chapters 1 through 4 and to give instruction about his kingdom and how to follow the king. Well, we've seen a lot about who the king is and proving who the king is, but now we enter into some of that instruction. Instruction about the kingdom and instruction about how to follow the king. We've seen some followers start to gather in last week, but now we start to get some instruction of how do you follow this king. 
And so it's appropriate where this sits, the first of the five discourses in the book of Matthew for helping us understand how to follow the king. But there's another level at which we could examine the setting of this uh, gospel, and it's this. Like I said, Jesus goes up into the mountain. You're like, okay, so what? Well, it's very interesting, like we've been seeing in Matthew so far, Matthew is welded to the Old Testament. It can't get away from the Old Testament, and that makes sense. The Old Testament is, uh, and the New Testament form a unity. If you had the Old Testament without a new, you would have a plot without a climax. If you had the New Testament without the old, you would have a climax without a plot. So they're connected. And even this language that Matthew uses here, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. That phrase, he went up on the mountain in Greek, is used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to one particular individual going up to one particular mountain. And that one particular individual is Moses going up to Mount Sinai. And that's significant. What, what happens when, when, uh, when Moses goes up? They, they, remember what happens, right? That Moses, under God's power and God's, uh, all these miracles that Moses has been doing to rescue the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt, and then they go to Mount Sinai. And what happens on Mount Sinai is that Moses is given the law, the instruction for Israel to speak. And that's exactly what Matthew is alluding to. But here, the difference is we have a second Moses starting a second, uh, a second exodus from exile. And he, this second Moses, Jesus, the deliverer, is going to speak from the mountain and he is going to give his law. He is going to give his instruction. If you remember, you could turn back briefly real quick to Deuteronomy this has been prophesied before. Deuteronomy 18. It's not one of those passages that you're familiar with. You should familiarize you with it right now. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15, says this. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So Moses is speaking prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. Horeb is just another name for Sinai. When you said, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God to see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And the New Testament, and even this portion in Matthew, is starting to show that this is the prophet. This is the one who is speaking for God. And not only that, as Matthew has already hinted at, this is God himself speaking. It's not just that God is giving another man something to speak. It is God himself on the top of a mountain speaking to his people, God veiled in human flesh. So that is part of the setting as we walk in to the Sermon on the Mount. But next, who's the audience? So we've got some of the setting. Where does this sit in Matthew? Where are we at geographically? Where are we at theologically? And as far as even prior revelation? But 
who's the audience? Who is Jesus speaking this to? And this is where a lot of confusion has come about. Who is Jesus speaking to? Well, verse 1 and 2, look at it again. What does it say? Seeing the crowds, you remember the crowds, we saw them last week. These people that uh, Jesus has went fishing, we said that, right? He went fishing with the bait of uh, kingdom foretaste, and all these crowds started gathering, and they started following him, and those are the crowds that are referred to here. But notice what it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples... This is the first time the word disciples is used in the book of Matthew, the explicit term. But we saw him gathering disciples last week, those who would come after Jesus, those who would come to learn from him, to listen to him, to follow him. And that's who he's speaking to here. He sat down and his disciples came to him. And verse two, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, now who's the them? It could just be the disciples that it's at the very least the disciples But is he also speaking to the crowds? Is he also speaking to the crowds? It's kind of ambiguous whether he's talking to just the disciples or he's talking to the crowds. But we can answer that question if we look to the end of the sermon, chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 28, and it says this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them... And then them there has to refer to the crowds as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So who's the audience? The audience, first and foremost, is the disciples, those who have committed to following Christ, those who have repented and are following Christ. It's primarily, the sermon is primarily for the disciples, but Jesus also is speaking this sermon to the crowds. He's also speaking it to the crowds. It's a both and. It's primarily for the disciples and secondarily for the crowds. The potential, the kind of neutral crowd. We're not sure if they're going to follow Jesus or not, but he instructs them as well. And here's the other thing you have to realize. When Jesus is speaking to primarily his disciples and then secondarily the crowds, it's not as if he's just speaking to the disciples as individuals. Did you notice that? Uh, He's got a group of them, at least four at this point, perhaps more. It's not like he's just sitting them down one-on-one and teaching them. He's teaching a group of them. And that's actually going to be significant as we walk through the sermon. You see, what is laid out in the sermon is not an individual ethic. Of course, the things that that are in here do have implications for the individual. But what you see is it's the individual in community. It's the community of disciples together that Jesus is speaking to. And that we need to hear this as we are a very individualistic culture. We are very, very self-reliant. But Jesus wants to speak to us not just as individuals, but as a corporate grouping of disciples. And even some of the things he says, they're directed to the collective, to the collective group of those who are following Jesus. So we've seen the setting, we've seen the audience. What's the purpose? What is the purpose of this sermon uh, or this discourse, however you want to talk about it? Well, first, to help us understand the purpose, and we're going to spend some time here, first thing that would help us is to understand its theme. What's its main theme? Now, a theme is not a purpose, it's different, but it's related. 
Let's talk about the theme. And I would say to you this, it's the title of our sermon today, it's Kingdom Righteousness. Kingdom Righteousness. Let me try to show you that from the sermon itself. Just notice there are, there's a high concentration of the word righteousness in this sermon. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse, uh, verse 20. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Look at chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is a sermon about righteousness and about kingdom righteousness. And you remember even what we've seen so far in the book of Matthew. Remember when Jesus goes to John the Baptist and wants to be baptized, and John's like, no, 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 you you can't do that. I need to be baptized by you. And what does Jesus say? Let's do it now, because thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And he wasn't just talking about that baptism right then. He's talking about the whole of his life the whole of Jesus' life of of fulfilling, of actualizing, of bringing about righteousness. You see, the way what we said back then and what we say now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is that which conforms to God. God is himself the final standard of righteousness. And what is righteousness? It's that which conforms to his standard, a.k.a. it's that which conforms to him himself. So when we talk about fulfilling all righteousness, it's not just uh, Jesus counting his righteousness to us, although that's true, and we'll see that later in the gospel, but it's also concrete actions and attitudes that conform to what God would desire. And that's the kind of righteousness that this sermon is speaking to. Now, that even itself fits into a broader context. You see, righteousness, we would say it like this, righteousness in the the whole biblical storyline, how does God uh, tell people about his righteousness? He tells them about uh, concrete righteousness in his law. Really, the word for law in the Old Testament, the Torah, meant instruction. And what it was designed to do is it was designed to instruct you into what does it look like in a fallen world to live in conformity with God's standard, with God's righteousness. And we could even think back to our time in the the, the kingdom through covenant discussion of, of uh, God's storyline has always been about this kingdom, the very kingdom that Matthew is speaking of, the kingdom of under a stewardship reign over the whole earth and leading us from Eden and Eden fallen to back to Eden restored. And you remember how God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring, I'm going to give you this land as a beachhead kingdom And then you're going to be a light to all the nations of the world. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. And what did he give this nation? He gave them the law. Why? Why? Well, on one level, to display this is what God requires. This is what God's standard looks like. But also, this is, as as the Israelites would obey that law, obey that righteousness, God would bless them with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, would attract the nation's 
of the world. But the problem was we saw with the nation and even with the kings that came later that were supposed to lead the nation in righteousness and law, they couldn't do it. They couldn't obey it. As a nation, they were supposed to do that as a whole nation. They couldn't obey God's law. They couldn't conform to his righteousness as a nation. They couldn't do it. Turn over to Deuteronomy 30 just to see this. You need to see this as the backdrop. As we think about the sermon discussing kingdom righteousness, there's a whole Old Testament backdrop in law that is framing this for us. And even when the ink is still wet on the law in Deuteronomy... Even right after it says, okay, you're blessed if you obey it, and here you're blessed with the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, and you're cursed with the exact opposite of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant if you disobey. Chapter 30 basically says this, chapter 30, verse 1, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, you see, there's anticipation of, yeah, there's going to be times where you're going to get some of these blessings, but as a whole, you're not going to obey But what happens after that? What happens after you undergo the curse, the ultimate curse of exile? So after all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return, that's the language of repentance right there, and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, and Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Yahweh your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you, and you shall again obey the voice of Yahweh and keep all his commandments that I command you today. Yahweh your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your, your ground, For Yahweh will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of Yahweh your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of this, this book of the law, when you turn to Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, and that's the problem. Even before the ink is dry on the law, you as a people, as a whole, don't have the heart. You don't have a circumcised heart to obey Yahweh. But before the exile, before the curse came upon them, God connected with this promise, what he had just said in Deuteronomy 30 right here. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 20, 36, 25 through 27. We looked at these when we went through kingdom through covenant. What those give, what those passages talk to is the new covenant. And the promise of the new covenant is not a lawless existence, but a case where the law is written on the heart. Where the Spirit would come and indwell all of God's people and would cause them to walk in the commandments of God. 
And that would fulfill what's going on in Deuteronomy 30. You see, the law was never ever designed to earn a relationship with God. It was never designed for that. You even see that in Deuteronomy itself. It was designed, you already have a relationship with God by grace, and therefore, here's how you live. But the problem was, is that heart, as a, on the whole, it was there with a few individuals, but it, on the whole, the nation didn't have it. But that's when the new covenant, the glory of the new covenant, is that the, God would write the law on the heart, the spirit would come in and dwell the individual so that they would obey God's commands. Even in Isaiah 42, which is, we've talked about this passage before. Turn over there really briefly. Isaiah 42 and it connects with this idea. Remember, we've been looking at Isaiah a bunch in Matthew. Matthew keeps looking back because Isaiah says, you guys are, Isaiah essentially says, yeah, you guys are going into exile, but God's going to bring you out. God's going to deal with your sin. How is he going to deal with it? He's going to deal with it through the messianic suffering servant who's going to suffer in behalf of his people and bring them out of exile into righteousness. Listen to Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You see, it all connects. As scripture unfolds, we see that the one whom God has chosen, the ultimate Davidic king who's going to be the second Moses to lead his people out of exile and to fulfill righteousness, this is the one whom we ultimately see in Matthew as Jesus and it's not just that he brings the grace so that God will not punish you for your infractions of the law, but no, he will bring in, he will usher in the new covenant so that you can obey, so that you can obey. Because you have, as the follower of Christ, the spirit in the heart to cause you to obey God's commands. And this is where it brings us back to the sermon. Essentially, we have Jesus going up on a mountain like Moses, giving his law, giving his instruction. And so we might frame the, this is all under the heading of what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? We might describe it this way, to instruct his disciples in the righteousness that they must have in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me say that again. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to instruct, Jesus is instructing his disciples in the righteousness they must have in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as soon as I say that, you know, some of you are probably struggling right now. It's like, wait a minute, law? We're in the issue, we're in the period of grace. What's going on here? But here's the thing goes back to what I said earlier. There is two ways to look at law. Law-keeping is not legalism. Law-keeping is not legalism. Only when you make the law as the basis of your relationship with God, only when you make the law as your basis of your relationship with God is then when you're in the area of legalism. 
Or another way of framing that, when you're relying on the law in order to have a relationship with God, you have a false gospel. But the law as result, if you have a relationship with God, and this is how God always designed it to work, if you have a relationship with God, then the law will come about, your righteousness will come about as a result. You see the difference? There's one, legalism is you're looking to the law as basis for your relationship, whereas in the other, the law is the result, the, right, the instruction, the righteousness of God is a result of your relationship with God. Or, what's handy is John the Baptist and Jesus himself, and I'll use the same analogy at the end of the sermon, think of the fruit tree. Remember the fruit tree analogy? A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. You can't fix a bad tree by, by trying to do a bunch of different things. That's legalism. You can't try to fix the health of a tree by stapling a bunch of tr- nice, uh, juicy-looking fruit on the branches. That doesn't fix the tree. But if you have a good tree, one that is, has, uh, has a relationship with God through repentance, through trusting in Christ, through trusting in God, then it must grow fruit. It must grow righteousness. It must follow God's law. Not perfectly, but in increasing measure. And so that's why we can say this sermon is to instruct Christ's disciples, those who have repented, those who are trusting in God, those who are trusting in Christ, they've turned from sin and self, and their allegiance is towards Christ. This sermon is to instruct those disciples in the righteousness that they must have, must have as a result, a result of that relationship to enter the kingdom of heaven, its kingdom righteousness. So we've seen the setting, we've seen the audience, we've seen the purpose. What's the structure? What's the structure? You know, uh, I give, uh, uh, every week Julie wants me to give her my, my sermon notes, right? So you guys, she can print the bulletin, and put them in your, your bulletin. And uh, why is that? Because it's helpful to have a little bit of a sense of the structure ahead of time so you know where I'm going uh, before we get there, right? Well, this is the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. There's a structure in it, and it's helpful to know a, base, a basic idea of the structure of Jesus' discourse before we launch in. And uh, this is uh, helped by a particular commentary. His name's uh, Charles Quarles in giving this structure. So uh, I'm not smart enough to come up with this, but uh, listening to others and helping me understand, and now I want to help you understand. Just like most things, there's an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. There's an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. The introduction is what starts in verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3, and goes through chapter 5, verse 16. How do I know that? Well, let me help you, because the body, the body goes from chapter 5, 17 through 20 to 7, 12. How do I know that? Well, listen to 5, 17 through 20 really quickly. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, uh, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now switch over to chapter 7, verse 12. And you're going to hear some similar language. 7.12 says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So we just talked about the law and the prophets in 5.17 through 20, and then we see another reference to them in 7.12. Well, what is that? That's a bookends. That's delimiting for us what's the body of the sermon. Therefore, what we see in the Beatitudes and from 5.3 through 16, it's an, it's an instruction on the character of disciples. Jesus starts by describing the character of disciples in general, and then he launches into this discussion of kingdom righteousness, which is what the body is all about. From 5.17 through 7.12, the sermon is all about this kingdom righteousness. First, there's in 5.17 through 20, what we just read, there's a demand for superior righteousness. Then we get in from 521 through 548, these disciples' obedience to the law. You've heard that it was said, but now I say to you, it's talking, looking back to the law and helping disciples apply it and live by it. Then in chapter 6, we see the disciples' practice of unhypocritical righteousness. There's a hypocritical way to follow God, and Jesus warns against that. Then from 619 through 34, you see the disciples' priorities and their uh, not, love, not living for money, but living for God and his kingdom. And then in 7, 1 through 12, you see the disciples' relationships. Uh, judge not. Uh, don't throw your pearls before swine. And then the sermon ends after that body of talking about, this is what kingdom righteousness looks like. We end with a conclusion. And just like any good sermon, you, call, you end with a call to action. You end with a call to action. And really the conclusion from 7.13 through 27 is two ways to live. Two roads and two gates, two trees and fruits, two confessions and two hearers and builders. That just gives you a basic idea of how this sermon is laid out. And I would encourage you, even this next week, before we launch into this sermon as a whole, and even as we're working through it over the next few weeks, read through Matthew 5 through 7 over and over and over again. It doesn't take that long. We're going to do it here in a minute. And let this sink in. Let this sink in and see what Jesus is doing. And you see that structure played out. Which leads us to one final point before I actually read the sermon. How should we apply the sermon? How should we apply to the sermon? You see, some have said that the sermon is not applicable today to us at all. And I would strongly beg to differ with that assessment. Turn over to Matthew, at the very end of Matthew. We've looked at this a couple times. It's a foundational text for understanding Matthew, let alone all of Christianity. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, says this. Jesus came and said to them, this is his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So that's the primary mission. We talked about that month, uh, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago now. Make disciples. That's what we do. That's what Molly and Micah are doing in Albania. Make disciples. How do you do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then this, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And that's what we said even at the beginning of the overview of Matthew. 
what's the, uh, the, 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 the discourses really in a large measure describe the all that I have commanded you? They get, at least give us a core, a foundation of that. And Jesus is saying, go to the nations. So this isn't just for the Jews. This is for the nations. Church, go make disciples and teach them all that I commanded you, part of which is the Sermon on the Mount. So it must be applicable for today. But even more than that, in a sense, I mean, listen to Jesus calls for obedience. I'll read 5, 17 through 20 again. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, disciples, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, what we call least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Turn over to chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus really wants us to obey this. Us, here, in this room. He wants us to obey this. Listen to 721. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is Jesus' law for us. This is what we are called to, which has been striking to me individually, and I hope as we walk through it, it'll be striking to you. We need to hear, with ears to hear, to hear Jesus' words and his demands on us individually and collectively. Which is why we're going to read it here in a minute. But here's the thing. Remember who the audience is. Who's the audience? Disciples. Those who have repented and entrust themselves ultimately to Christ. So what happens when you fall short of this standard? When you fall short of Jesus' law, what do you do? you go back to him. You go back to the fact that he is the one who has the lived in flesh righteousness. He's the one that's going to deal with my sin before the Father, and he's the one who has given me the Spirit as a member of the new covenant so that I can increasingly, though not perfectly, obey this standard. That's what you do in applying this sermon. So as you listen to its commands, as you hear how radical the demands of Jesus are on his people, it's always rooted in the fact that on my own, I could never do this. The only way that I am righteous in God's sight is through the lens of Jesus Christ, 
and through him giving me the power of the Holy Spirit so that I can, in increasing measure, obey these things. This is our target. But when we fall short, we have mercy from the God who is our rescuer, the one who has drawn us out and is drawing us out of exile. And with that, I would like to read the sermon now. But having set the stage, I want you to listen. And I want you to hear the words of Jesus as his disciple. If you're his disciple here this morning, I want, to hear, I want you to hear his words as if you were right on that mountaintop sitting right in front of him. And he was speaking with not just you, but those around you, your fellow disciples around you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be, will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. 
Truly, I say to you, you will never give out, get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may be seen by others, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, it, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, 
and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we are your disciples, and we want to do this. We want to live this. We know we are weak, but you are strong. We know you have given us your spirit, and we praise you for that. And we desire to live in that way. Make us a people that hunger and thirst for righteousness. We thank you for your imputed righteousness. We thank you you also have liberated us to grow in practical righteousness. Lord, help us to bear good fruit that honors you. And Lord, when we fail, help us to run back to you, to trust you, to labor, and to trust you at the same time as we walk. And Lord, make us ready for that day when we will stand before you and Lord, may none in this room have it heard said to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord, we love you, and we want to know you, not just now, for all eternity. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We praise you that you are the king. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Church, you are sent.